Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. Warning, this podcast includes subject matter and language that can be disturbing to some listeners. It is an unsettling subject matter that needs to be examined. Still, I must caution listeners. This is an FBI profiler discusses the Bitteker Norris case. This podcast is about, in my opinion, two of the most despicable criminals in the history of crime. Lawrence Sigmund Bitteker, born in 1940, and Roy Lewis Norris, born 1948, also known as the Toolbox Killers, were American serial killers, rapists, kidnappers, and sadists who murdered at least five teenage girls over a five-month period in 1979. Both men had spent their lives bouncing in and out of prisons, state hospitals, county jails. Fate took a hand in their meeting and they became friends while both were incarcerated at the California Men's Colony in 1977. They discovered they shared the same sick fantasies about kidnapping and raping young girls. Bitteker was released in 1978 and Norris was released the following year. They would meet again, this time without restrictions of bars and locks. Their fantasies were about to come true. Using a van they dubbed Murder Mac from February to June 1979, Bitteker and Norris picked up over 20 female hitchhikers without incident. These were practice runs for the killer's future. They decided on the best isolated area for carrying out their plans. It was a fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. A gate with a lock kept the public from entering, but Bitteker broke this lock to replace it with his own lock. Lucinda Lynn Schaefer was called Cindy by her friends. She was only 16 and two weeks away from her 17th birthday. On June 24, 1979, in the Redondo Beach area, Bitteker and Norris observed Cindy as she walked home from a Presbyterian church. Cindy stopped to cuddle a kitten on the sidewalk and then moved on. The two men grabbed her off the street, shoved her into their van, and drove down the fire road. I'm not going to detail what they did to Cindy. Cindy asked them to allow her to say a prayer before she died, but they denied her request. Her body was tossed into a steep canyon, and her remains were never located. Now, Cindy was a Texas girl and hailed from Bear County, Texas, where I'm from and I grew up. I have a certain affinity for her. She was not interested in drinking or drugs, and at almost 17 years old, she had a plan. She wanted to go to college to study language and teach foreign language, just like her mother did. She was a bit shy and feeling lonesome while in California. She spoke fluent Spanish, and she worked hard at whatever she took on. Cindy wore her shoulder-length blonde hair straight. She was a slender teen with a very sweet disposition. Her parents were divorced, and she lived with her mother, who was teaching in Mexico City. 
Cindy's plans were to spend her summer working and taking advantage of the beach while staying with her grandparents. She had been in California less than 20 days when abducted. The day before her abduction, Cindy had written a letter to her friends. I cry a lot because I get to feeling pretty lonely sometimes. I just tell myself there's no use in feeling sad because there's nothing I can do about it. I just try to feel glad about the good friends I've made and look to the future when I'll make some more. Andrea Joy Hall was abducted by the two men on July 8, 1979. She was 18 years old and hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Like so many other kids her age did in the 1970s, hitchhiking was just something that you did to get from place to place. She was attacked, bound by duct tape, and the van drove into the San Gabriel Mountains beyond where they had earlier taken Schaefer. Again, I'm not detailing the assault. Bitteker and Norris threw the 18-year-old slender, dead body into the canyons. Her remains would never be located. She was just a teenager exploring life and enjoying her teen years. She had pretty straight blonde hair framing an oval face. A California girl who looked like she would live on the beach. One photo shows her wearing a necklace with a large white pendant and she is looking wistfully over her shoulder and into the distance. She was an individual, a daughter, a friend, and yet her name will forever be linked to a pair of serial killers. On September 3rd, Bittaker and Norris observed Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach. The killers picked them up and offered them a ride. The girls had been hitchhiking, maybe thinking they were safer in pairs. Both girls smoked marijuana with the men, according to one of the men. Jackie was 15, and Jacqueline, who went by Leah, was only 13. Jackie would fight hard to get away, but she was no match for the strong, determined, large male killer. The girls were tortured, assaulted, and brutally beaten until their remains were tossed over a ravine into the San Gabriel Mountains. Jackie had tousled, wavy blonde hair that framed her fresh face. Her hazel eyes just sparkled when she smiled. Jackie left behind her parents and a sister whose age differed only a year. Leah had short, darker hair, and in one photo, she shows an open, beautiful smile. Jackie left behind her parents and a younger brother. Leah's family attended the parole hearing of Roy Norris to remind the board how a beloved child was taken from them. So their lives were constantly reminded of Norris and Bittaker. Jackie's mother passed away a few years after her daughter's murder. The remains of both girls would later be located so their loved ones could give them a proper as burial as humanly possible. Jackie's skull had the remains of an ice pick going through her ear canal. 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford was abducted on October 31, 1979, as she stood outside a gas station, hitchhiking. She had just attended a Halloween party in a suburb of Los Angeles. She wasn't in costume because she told her mama that she didn't want to be wearing a Halloween costume at night outside. Investigators believe Lynette probably accepted a ride home from Bittaker because she recognized him as a regular customer at the restaurant where Lynette waitressed. Lynette was tortured, sodomized, and beaten for hours. They mocked her and disfigured the young girl's body. 
Lynette's attack was audio taped with a tape recorder until they killed her and dumped her body into a patch of ivy in a suburban neighborhood. There are stories about this tape being used to train FBI agents and that a lead investigator committed suicide after hearing it. I will definitely discuss this detail in a moment with our guest. I hope Lynette finds some peace in knowing that this audio tape of her torture was instrumental in helping to convict her killers, putting them behind bars for the rest of their lives. Still, they were allowed to live their lives. Lynette's most popular photo shows a pretty sweet-faced girl, her brown hair cut in a shag, a slight smile. She had dark, soulful eyes that stare straight into the camera. Only 16, she had a part-time job, and she had a family who adored her. The perpetrators would eventually be arrested, charged, and sent to prison. Both died behind bars, with Bittaker still on death row. I hope you remember the girls' names more so than the names and statistics of these brutal men who took their lives in such a diabolical fashion. To understand their killers in the hopes of preventing more senseless murders, I believe we must look inside of these killers. This is where the Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI comes in. In 1972, the FBI established the Behavioral Science Unit in response to the rising wave of sexual assault and homicide during the early 1970s. In 1976, FBI Supervisory Special Agents John Douglas and Robert Ressler and Dr. Ann Burgess were members of the Behavioral Science Unit. Douglas and Ressler traveled to interview serial killers across the United States in prisons. Thus, profiling was born. Using crime scene evidence, the BSU creates a profile of the subject who they believe may be responsible for the crime. Now the BSU assists across the world in training, profiling, and lecturing on their craft. This morning we're having coffee with Mark Safrick. He was a senior member of the FBI's Elite Behavioral Analysis Unit. And it was during this time he established himself as an internationally recognized expert in the analysis and interpretation of violent criminal behavior. His law enforcement career spans over 31 years, during which time he worked all levels of police work, from patrol as a beat cop to a detective working homicides. He served 23 years with the FBI, 12 of those as a criminal profiler. Mr. Safrick has a graduate degree from Boston University and is adjunct facility at Boston College. Mark has reviewed and consulted on thousands of national and international crimes of violence, including all types of homicide, serial, mass, spree, and multiple murders, sexual assault. His expert testimony has been utilized by attorneys in both criminal and civil courts. Mark Safrick has appeared on Dateline, Court TV, Forensic Files, New Detectives, A&E, numerous, numerous shows. He has two seasons of Cold Case Homicide television shows in both Sweden and Denmark. I'm having coffee now with one of my favorite people in this business. Mark Safrick is retired as one of the most senior members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Elite Behavioral Analysis Unit. Mark has appeared on numerous television shows such as Killer Instinct and Snapped and multiple national news stations sharing his experience and professional insight. He is an author and journalist whose work has appeared in many internationally acclaimed journals. Mark, is that all you're doing? I mean, can you do more? 
<laughs> Good morning, Judith. Hey, great to be here. Thank you very much. You know, I try to split my time uh, between uh, doing research and publishing. Um, so just had an article came out in the, the Journal of Behavior and Law in February on serial sexual homicide by juveniles. Um, and I do TV work, a uh, lot of lot of filming on various cases. I still uh, do expert testimony work and expert witness consulting. And let's see, and present presentations, teaching and and doing presentations. So, yeah, my plate my plate stays fairly full. Well, it sounds like it. And actually, that's how we met is a presentation. And we only really get to visit in person every few years when appearing at these conferences and symposiums. Right. So it's good to be here. It's good to talk to you personally and professionally. So in today's Thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. We, well, in today's podcast, we're going to be discussing two of the most depraved people in the history of crime, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Mark, you retired as a profiler the FBI's BSU. Was a profile completed on these two before they were caught while they were committing their crimes? You know, I, I don't believe so. Of course, this was 1979. And um, the unit, uh, my my former partner, my the late Robert Ressler, um, you know, he coined the term serial killer in 1977. So this is really only two years after that. And um, I'm almost certain that we did not do any kind of uh, assessment. And I know uh, Douglas, John Douglas, says that he wrote an assessment, but um, I think he he may have written something after they were arrested, a sort of a summary of them um, and their backgrounds. But if you if you look at the cases, you know, the first case uh, in, June of 79. And then uh, law enforcement really wasn't even aware of the disappearances of these young women until uh, Shirley Ledford was found. Literally, I think it was November 1st, 1979. So we wouldn't, you know, as the FBI, we wouldn't have even been involved because uh, law enforcement he wasn't even aware there was a series of homicides. By the time law enforcement is even aware of anything, it's November 1st, 79, when um, Shirley's body is discovered on a hillside. And at that time, law enforcement would have just thought that they had a single homicide case. So there would have been no reason um, that they would have even thought that this was a, a series. Um, they didn't have uh, these other women identified as being missing. And then you don't, e you don't even have to go very far because all you do is you jump maybe uh, less than three weeks to November 20th when both of these guys are arrested. So you have the discovery of Shirley Ledford's body on the 1st, and then uh, Bitterker has a conversation with a guy that he knows sometime probably within that first week uh, after the discovery of the body. And he, you know, relays information about these other cases. And then this guy meets with his attorney, and then they decide that they're going to provide this to law enforcement. So 
it's probably a you know in the first 10 days of november all of this is going down and then no law enforcement is notified and you know within a week and a half you've got bitteker and norris in custody so that's sort of the long answer i there's no reason that we as the behavioral uh, analysis unit would have been involved in that case in 1979. Um, we just wouldn't have been aware of it. Law enforcement wasn't even aware of the series at that time, really until, until they got this informant information um, indicating that, you know, Bitteker had talked about these other cases. That would have been the first time they were aware of it. So I think any assessment that had been written was done subsequent to the arrest and was done, uh, you know, with all of the information about Bitteker and Norris and, and the, and now the knowledge about the other victims. So I would say, no, there was, there was no assessment written. Certainly not. Um, you know, when we, when there was no suspect identified, well, they didn't even know that the cases really um, existed at the time. And, you know, in 1979, the only time we really would be involved in cases, if, if we were trying to assist law enforcement to, um, you know, with a series case that was unsolved or where you had a, an unknown offender, but you know, by by uh, November twentieth, both of these guys were in custody and and were not out of cuff, custody subsequent to that. So, yeah, not, almost certain there was no assessment done. Right, because initially they said the girls were runaways, and since they were teenage girls and it was the nineteen seventies, they'll come back, or they ran away with a boyfriend or something to that affair. Right, right. I mean, this was not. Not uncommon. Um, you know, this was the seventies. This was the age of hitchhiking. You, you don't even hardly ever see any hitchhikers anymore, mostly males if there are, but, um, you know, the, these were prime targets for, uh, serial offenders because it was low risk for them and very, very high risk for, for the, the women that were hitchhiking. And, um, these, this was, you know, the target group. Um, but these young girls, you know, they just would have been identified as being runaways or, uh, you know, there would have been no indication that there was a homicide. And it, of course, uh, with most of these young uh, females, they got into the van willingly. So you don't need, you don't have a crime scene. You don't have anything. Um, you basically have a girl hitchhiking. Um, and then gets in a van and then is driven, you know, great distance away. So there's no knowledge that anything uh, untoward has even happened, um, not from law enforcement's perspective. And and again, not even, uh, you know, the, at the most, maybe a runaway. But, um, you know, those really weren't investigated back in those days. How would you classify Bitteker and Norris as far as their, I mean, obviously sexual deviancy, but if you were going to explain who they are, what they did, how would you? Right. Well, I mean, if you look, if you look, uh, you know, in hindsight, <clears throat> it's, it's very clear that you're dealing with sexual sadists, both of them. Now I, I know, um, you know, 
both Norris tried to put it off on Bitteker as, you know, being the one who got excited about torturing and Bitteker played it off on Norris, but they were both culpable. They both uh, enjoyed this. So it's crystal clear that I would classify these guys as, of course, serial killers, but sexual sadists. And then I've worked a number of sexual sadist cases, and they're very disturbing cases, and they're very difficult to solve, typically because the offenders in these cases are above average in intelligence. They're um, typically evidence conscious, although, you know, again, you have to go back to 1979. We We weren't doing any kind of DNA or anything like that. At the most, we were doing blood groups. Um, our forensic abilities were quite limited. Um, even you know, even when you look at in terms of uh, law enforcement communication, uh, we just didn't have the abilities really to communicate to other law enforcement agencies. The FBI was using a teletype system that we could send information out to like the head law enforcement uh, office. But, um, you know, we always have to, I think, look through the lens of the year that these cases are taking place. But uh, clearly, sexual sadists, difficult to catch because they typically are quite organized, above average in intelligence, uh, typically evidence conscious, uh, although these guys weren't so much so. Um, and also they're planners. Um, and you you see this in some of their, you know, when they got together um, and then decided to, you know, engage in this type of behavior. They made a lot of dry runs. They planned it out. They got a van. They decided, you know, how what kind of van they needed, how they were going to do this. And then they made a lot of dry runs. This was not unlike other killers like Ed Kemper, who did the same kind of thing, picking up hitchhikers, trying out different lines on them see to see what worked, to see what made them uncomfortable, um, you know, remove the door handle, see if that becomes a problem. Uh, so they, they, they did a lot of dry runs before they actually, you know, engaged with uh, their first victim. And I would also say that, you know, when we look at these guys, they're probably score very high on the psychopathy checklist. So they're, they're clearly psychopaths and, um, and, and, you know, on the scale on the psycho, on, on the, Hare's psychopathy checklist, I would say they would score very high, probably in the high 30s, maybe very close to 40. So, um, you know, psychopathic sexual sadists, um, a very difficult type of offender to catch. And when you get a case, uh, certainly when uh, they found Shirley, um, the the level of uh, brutality and injury that she suffered, uh, probably gave them a lot of pause, law enforcement, a lot of pause. And, you know, it almost shakes you to your core when you get a case like that. And I've worked a number of these um, because once you realize that you're dealing with a sexual sadist, um, you realize that you're both up against the clock and that this individual or individuals are going to be difficult to catch. Interestingly enough, when you look back at the history of Bitteker and Norris independently, you know, they're both longtime criminals. 
you know, but Bitteker is involved in a different, you know, generally non, non, uh, person crimes, um, except as he, you know, as he, as he got closer to, to knowing Norris, but generally his early crimes were not, but Norris was generally a guy who was involved in lots of, uh, violent crime against persons. But when you bring these two people together, there's this uh, symbiosis between them where they both support each other. And, um, you know, in a lot of teams you have, um, you have the leader and then you have, you have the alpha and then you have the follower. That's very true. In most teams, you've got someone who's in charge who makes all the decisions, but in, in, with Bitteker and Norris, you had really two sort of a personalities and they, they just functioned very well together and, you know, you know, egged each other on, um, supported each other, uh, uh, both of them coming up with ideas and ways to, to, uh, enhance their, you know, the arousal factor for them, both of them, you know, sexual sadists are, are a rare and thankfully so a rare kind of killer. Um, and as I said before, difficult to catch, but in terms of murderers, um, you they're probably one of the rarest types of murderers but here you end up with two guys who who are both sexual sadists and who feed off of each other which makes them actually much more dangerous as a pair they were dangerous you know as singly but together um you know they feed each other's fantasies and support each other in all the decisions they make and just really one of the most um egregious and brutal um killer pairs um that i can really think of um, I and mean, i've dealt with a number of really bad actors um but they they're really at the top of the scale yeah it was really sort of a perfect storm for want of a better word where one individual meets another individual and they fill in each other's gaps and then they're okay how big can we make these gaps, so to speak? Right, right. It is unusual, you know, that that you, it's it's one of these meetings that just ends up blossoming into something for them that, uh, you know, each of their fantasies get fulfilled by the other individual and supported and uh and moved forward and and increased in, in violence and that's not un, not uncommon uh when you you know when you try different things and you get excitement from you know the the brutality that you inflict on your victims the torture uh you know and and i think many people get get this wrong is when they think of sexual sadists they think that most of them get the pleasure from inflicting the violence. Um, but, and that's true. They do, but in, in Bitteker, he said it, uh, he articulated this a number of times. What really makes it arousing for them, uh, sexually arousing 
is the response from the victim that they get from inflicting the type of torture. And, you know, a lot of Norris's was emotional, telling the victim what they were going to do, you know, and watching their reaction to, you know, being told, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to hurt you, I'm going to injure you. So you have you have physical um, torture, you have psychological or emotional torture, <clears throat> and they can all be, uh, you know, they're all being inflicted by these two individuals. But it's, you know, it's not so much the actual infliction of the pain, it's the response that that you know infliction gives the gives the sexual sadist that's what they're looking for because they could do the same thing to you know a dead person but they don't get a response back and they need the response it's that it's the abject terror the abject fear that they can elicit from the victim that they find so intoxicating um I think, and, and a lot of people just think it's, they like to hurt people, but, and that's true, but they use the, the hurt and the infliction of pain, whether it's physical or emotional to extract that, that, um, that response. And it's the response that really, that's what they're really looking for. You know, my heart just hurts when I think about these kids, they're 16, 17 years old you know, just girls thinking I'm going to the beach, I'm going home. It's just, it's heart-wrenching. And I I just can't even imagine. I can't even think. And, and. No, it's, it's, it's very difficult. This is just absolutely brutal, just absolutely horrific. And we can't, it's very difficult for us to put ourselves in that position of, you know, engaging in that kind of brutality. It's just really almost beyond comprehension. And, you know, when you talk about evil and, you know, Bitteker and Norris are truly, truly evil individuals. And, um, yeah, it's very difficult to deal with, the victims and the and especially the family members that had to, you know, uh, sit through the trials and uh, and listen to these and to listen to the tapes was just horrible. Uh, you know, you, all you can do is support the family members, but um, yeah, these you know, if I think Stephen Kay, who was the prosecutor in these trials, especially I, I think for Bitteker said. Um, that you know in his entire career of you know prosecuting these types of cases he'd even in in all of the cases cases he'd ever heard of that these were the two most evil individuals and certainly deserved the death penalty if anybody deserved it these two these two people that he described as really not even human um it's it's very tragic and i think a lot of times when uh, there's a discussion about these cases. The focus is often on the offenders, definitely, and very, very little in in many TV shows. The victims get forgotten, you know, or you know, just referred to in, in passing when really the focus should have been on the uh, on the on the victims in in these cases. 
So um, it's it was it was a you know just a tragic uh, five months in 1979 when these two individuals were active. And unfortunately, the victims' name, even their families, will be forever connected to these two pieces of crap. Uh, <laughs> even their families, because when I wrote When Nashville Bled, it was always Jenna Jackson, mother of Sarah Jackson, who was murdered by Paul Dennis Reed. That's right. their identity now, which is ridiculous, but that's what happens. Now, that's I, right. I, I want to discuss one of the biggest myths in all of the true crime realm. Bitteker and Norris audiotaped tortures, and they audiotaped the torture of their final victim, Shirley Ledford. Correct. The yeah, they did. Released to the public. The story has always been the recording is used to desensitize FBI agents to violence. And there's also a, a story going around. The chief investigator of the case would later commit suicide, citing the murders as his main reason. How true is right. that? that? Yeah, that's that's not true at all. Um, uh, you know, I spent uh, almost 13 years at the FBI uh, Academy, you know, in the behavioral analysis unit, all the profilers are at the FBI Academy. I uh, was an instructor in many of the new agents classes. I also uh, did the uh, instruction for the National Academy. I did 27 National Academy sessions where I actually provided the um, sort of the the profiling, you know, what is profiling? How do we do it? You know, why are we doing it? What are we looking for? Uh, that component for the National Academy's death investigation course. Uh, it, I, I never experienced that um, when I was a new agent. I never heard of that uh, being taught as a new agent. And certainly, um, it wouldn't even, that's wouldn't even be the, the course. New agents get about two hours of exposure to the behavioral analysis unit. And, and again, sort of what we talk about with the National Academy, the police officers that, that come and spend 11 weeks, four times a year. Um, they, they're just exposed to it in a few hours. And it's really just to tell them, you know, what it is, you know, how we're organized, what we do when when to call us in it's really just scratching the surface of of how we you know conduct our analyses you you wouldn't even be in a position to be playing something like that would be horrible and it wouldn't desensitize you anyway it would just it would like many people and like many seasoned investigators who have heard the tapes or parts of the tapes it just, you know, it makes you extremely sad um, and you don't want to hear that stuff. Um, but to play, to say that, you know, it's being played for new agents uh, just isn't true. And it, it wouldn't even desensitize you anyway, because, you know, to be desensitized to stuff like this, um, first of all, I've been doing this for many decades and I find that, you know, that that tape disturbing i have heard it a number of times but um the first my first exposure to it really was when i was 
in the behavioral analysis unit in my initial four months of training uh, when we were talking about sexual status. So only in terms of when we're learning about sexual sadism, um, are we, you know, being exposed to that tape, but new agents wouldn't even be in that position because they're only getting sort of the, a brief overview of, you know, uh, behavioral analysis and when we use it, how we use it and that sort of thing, just superficial. But in all my time at the Academy, I never heard that. And, um, I certainly would have, if they, if they were, uh, playing that and it just wouldn't even make any sense to do that. And it wouldn't serve any purpose, certainly not desensitizing people to violent crime. Um, just, you know, repeated exposure to all types of violent crime, um, you know, you might desensitize you, but just playing that tape would, would not serve any purpose. So no, that, that's not, has never happened. Has it ever been released to anyone other than law enforcement, any journalists, any writers, I don't know, right? Um, that would see that would be. I think that since would be the FBI didn't investigate that case, um, we certainly have the tape uh, because uh, as part of research, I know Roy Hazelwood uh, had it in, in part of his uh, you know, sexual sadism research study, contacting the law enforcement agency that investigated uh, those cases. Um, we could have obtained it. We certainly wouldn't uh, have released it and I think rarely would have used it perhaps in, um, you know, instructing homicide investigators uh, in, in homicide schools, but, um, but that would have been controlled by the agency um, that, that investigated the cases. And I can't think of any reason why they would have ever released that that tape that would be my thought sort of like the bernardo homoka videos that they made right it's exactly and, and we we you know and i i know this from having conducted quite a bit of research uh on sexual homicides of elderly females uh in in the um in the behavior in my time in the behavioral unit and having published many articles and book chapters on this subject I'm able, you know, I was able to contact law enforcement agencies and because my position in the behavioral analysis unit um, and because I was conducting research in this area, I was able to get lots of case materials um, from these agencies where they wouldn't have released it to anybody else. But, you know, because of who we were and what we were doing, I could get materials like that. And if we had called up and spoken with the agency. I'm, I know, you know we got the tapes, um, and but we would be very um, careful with those. And and I know even in my almost thirteen years in the unit, we we I never uh, played those tapes for anybody else, and uh, wasn't aware of uh, anybody that would have even brought them to. Uh, like a, a school that we were teaching for uh, say homicide investigators or violent crime investigators, just really no need to, to, uh, to put that out there. But again, that would have been controlled by the agency that had done the investigation, but I just can't imagine that they, any reason that they would have ever released that. Now that I think those tapes, the tape was played in court, 
So, right. you know, if a, if a journalist was recording that surreptitiously in the courtroom, um, you know, the, of course that's beyond the control and, um, but I, I've not ever really seen that tape out in the public domain. Mark, thank you so much for meeting me this morning, having coffee together. And I do want Absolutely. to that these girls, and I'm sure there were probably more that we don't know about, they were beyond being a crime victim. They were people. They were loved ones. They were sisters, daughters, cousins, friends. They were much more than the victim of a crime. And I would like people to remember that first and foremost. Oh, it's always, it's so critical to always, you know, to talk about the, the men and women who are victims of violent crime as people. They have names. True Crime Games announces its premier game, Survive the Titanic, the card game. In this game, you will meet survivors, gather equipment, and relive history. This card game combines skill and strategy with history and lore. But will you survive? The object of the game is to collect a set number of survivors and pieces of equipment into your lifeboat before Titanic sinks. But don't add luggage and watch out for those SOS cards. Just like an iceberg, the speed of a ship, or weather conditions, certain cards can change your plans in one turn. The RMS Titanic was the most luxurious ship to sail the oceans, the largest man-made object on Earth in her time. On April 10, 1912, the Titanic set sail for her maiden voyage to New York. On April 14, Titanic struck an iceberg. Two hours and 40 minutes later, she disappeared into the sea, taking 1,496 souls to the bottom of the ocean. Now you can travel back to 1912 and this exciting, engaging card game. As the game moves along, you will learn fascinating facts about the Titanic passengers that don't often make headlines, collect vital life-saving equipment from 1900s ocean travel, and discover objects on the RMS Titanic Manifest. The game is also a memorial to those lost in the hopes you will allow their legacy to live on. Some proceeds will be donated to a nonprofit organization that supports this mission. For more information, go to www.besttruecrime.com and click on Games. Now, boarding passes, please. Boarding passes. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there. <laughs>